What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Hello, I'm Nick Gowing. Welcome to the Emanuel Centre here in central London for this Intelligence Square debate on how the West should respond to the so-called Islamic State or ISIS. Beheadings, crucifixions, the attacks in Paris, control over billions of dollars in oil revenues, and extraordinary global digital power to influence people. Currently, IS controls significant tracts of territory in parts of Iraq and Syria, calling itself an Islamic caliphate. Western leaders say IS must and will be destroyed, and currently they are, they're only using air power. The new Russian intervention to support Syria's President Assad has now complicated all of that. Some Arab states are in recent days considering deploying military force, including ground forces, against IS. Should the West do the same? So the motion for this Intelligence Squared debate, defeating ISIS means Western boots on the ground. We have an excellent panel for you, arguing for the motion. Four-star American General John Allen. Until last October, General Allen was President Obama's special envoy to the global coalition to counter and defeat ISIS, and Douglas Murray, the award-winning political commentator who specialises in the Middle East, terrorism and national security. Against the motion, Ken Livingston, Mayor of London when the 7-7 attacks on public transport 11 years ago killed 52 people on the tube and on a bus. And Ruler Jibrail, journalist and author, foreign policy analyst, focuses on Islamic extremism and the new political order in the Arab Muslim world. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our speakers. Well, shortly you'll hear from the four speakers, two for the motion and two against. I'll then throw open the debate to all of you uh, on the floor to hear as many views as possible from both sides, including the third view, that you're undecided uh, at the moment. I'll uh, uh, then ask the audience to vote on the motion 
Uh, and already you've given your view as you were coming into the hall. Uh, I'll tell you later which way you're thinking now. Then you'll know how the arguments up here and from the floor have influenced uh, how you are thinking at the moment. Let's first, though, go to the opening statement from the four panellists. Speaking first for the motion, four-star U.S. General John Allen. As a U.S. Marine officer, he was involved in military operations in Iraq in Anbar province in 2007. He was President Obama's special envoy for the global coalition to counter ISIS until he chose to step aside late last year. General Allen, the floor is yours. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great personal pleasure for me once again to be back in London, where I never miss the opportunity publicly to thank the United Kingdom and the British people for the magnificent performance of your forces that it was my great honor to serve with in Afghanistan from 2011 to 2013. Uh, to tonight's business, let me thank the BBC and the Intelligence Square producers for their wisdom in engaging Nick Gowing to be our navigator tonight through a critical conversation. And I'd also like to honor my colleague, Douglas Murray, and our esteemed contestants, uh, Rula Jubriel and Ken Livingston, for their long and distinguished humanitarian careers and all that they've contributed. So let me start my portion of the debate this evening by utterly confusing the event. I am both for the motion Defeating ISIS means Western boots on the ground, and I'm against it. And let me explain. The situation in the Middle East is the most complex and dangerous I have seen in the 30 years that I have been in and out of the region and dealing with extremist groups. In 2014, when ISIL turned on the Yazidis, captured Mosul, and turned towards Erbil, the West reacted. Initially, with air power to slow and to stop the enemy, and then with advisors and equipment to assist the Kurds in defending their territory and assist the Iraqis in their counteroffensive. It was clear to the United States and many other of our partners, to include the United Kingdom, that ISIL was a qualitatively different organization than anything that we had faced before, and that we, the community of nations, were faced with some very hard decisions about the ways and the means of how we would respond, and importantly, to do it in a manner that didn't worsen the situation in the region. For example, deployment of large-scale Western formations. So this brings us to the options, and let me make two points. In any crisis like this, the decision to commit force falls into two broad categories. The decisions are not and cannot be binary. The reality will be that the actual commitment of force will exist along a spectrum of capabilities that generally are dictated by the political environment, by the strategy, and by the operational realities. So to the suggestion that we employ large-scale conventional formations, let me say that we're actually quite good at this. And there might be substantial short-term accomplishment which would make us feel good about that deployment. But in the longer term, and an even greater disruption of the political and social fabric is more likely the outcome in the region, a region that is in deep crisis now. It's worth remembering that we fought for eight years in Iraq with a force in excess of over 100,000 troops against a much less capable force. And it's fair to say 
that no one is prepared to have that kind of commitment for that period of time at that cost in blood and treasure again. But remember I said that there were two broad choices. The other choice, the one I strongly support, could generally be described as enabling the indigenous force. That is, supporting and training and equipping and advising and assisting local forces ultimately to be the defeat mechanism. Now, this is a harder option. It takes longer to, to begin that option. It takes longer to organize. But at the tail end of this proposition, the defeat mechanism of ISIL will be the indigenous force, which not only defeats the enemy physically, and this is critical, also sees to the rescue of the liberated population. The importance of this latter point cannot be overstated. And it is an essential point that ISIL cannot truly be defeated if the freed population is not stabilized, cared for, and embraced. And so in the end, elements of both choices are necessary for defeating this scourge. What is necessary in the approach, one is that is akin to what we're following today, is providing support to the Iraqis and the Syrians and the Syrian armed opposition that will be necessary ultimately to the physical defeat of this organization. So what does this look like? And let me just make three broad points. What we're doing, what we ought to do, and what else we might consider with respect to the commitment of forces. Critically, what we're doing now must enable and support the Iraqi security forces and Syrian opposition elements to physically defeat this organization on the ground. It must also create the conditions where the Sunni and indigenous populations of the region are decisively engaged in the defeat of this organization. Whether that's the Sunni tribes or the Sunni Arab states, it is essential that the ownership for the defeat of ISIL be in the hands of the indigenous population of that region. As King Abdullah II of Jordan said, it must have a Muslim voice and an Arab face in order to take back their faith. So in this, we're already seeing some success on the ground, given the forces from the West that have been committed. And these forces are performing the following functions. Precision strike with coalition air power, as Nick said. Advisors at various levels, which are scalable depending on the operational environment. The capacity, the capacity building sites, training sites located in Iraq and in the region where the indigenous population is being trained and equipped to be the lead elements in fighting ISIL. And now we're beginning to move some direct action, tier one strike force elements into the region to pair with indigenous special operators to strike key ISIL targets as we discover them. That's what we're doing. What we should consider are additional advisors which could accompany a broader spectrum of formations farther forward in the conflict, uh, the potential employment of helicopter gunships, the creation of a joint special operations task force, either in southern Turkey or northern Jordan, manned by western special operators but dedicated to the training and the support of indigenous regional special operators so that they are supporting our Syrian partners and to some extent the Iraqis and the Kurds in taking the fight to ISIL. And then my one large formation recommendation is to create a mobile special operations or an airborne task force, again located outside Syria or Iraq but very close, supported by combat aviation which is transport and helicopter gunships that can move very quickly to a, a vulnerability that we might detect in ISIL's uh, outer crust, 
strike that vulnerability, crush it, turn it over to the indigenous population, withdraw quickly from the region, and prepare once again to go after the next vulnerability that ISIL might reveal. And then additionally, I said there were three points. We should be considering how we in the West, with boots on the ground, can support stabilization operations for the liberation of populations from ISIL's domination. With an eye towards addressing and reducing the humanitarian calamity that we're facing, creating the conditions for the return of internally displaced persons, IDPs, we have to give the displaced populations of Iraq and Syria a place to go, a place to return to, other than potentially to come to Europe. So we should consider the temporary deployment of security forces to provide security to those liberated populations until indigenous forces can be trained for that security. Temporary deployment of field hospitals to provide immediate medical care to the women and the children and the minorities that have been liberated who have suffered so dramatically from Daesh's subjugation. And finally, engineering units where we do very good work in the West to assist in the immediate restoration of essential services such as power and water and immediate short-term repair of critical infrastructure. So in the end, I'm both for the motion. It will require specialized and carefully calibrated and deployed Western, Arab, and Sunni military forces to defeat ISIL. They're doing it now. But I'm also against the motion that where we find ourselves today in this battle with ISIL, we should commit large-scale Western formation of combined arms forces. It boils down essentially to this. We do it and hand it off, or they do it with our help. History has shown over and over that the latter approach is the least disruptive to the social and the political environment and brings us the greatest likelihood of success. Thank you. General Allen, thank you very much indeed with that carefully calibrated argument that certain boots on the ground will be helpful. Let's go now to the first voice against the motion. Ken Livingstone, one of Britain's most prominent and renowned political figures, been a long-standing critic of Western foreign policy, widely praised for how he led the UK capital's response to the 7-7 attacks in 2005. He recently caused outrage from some by saying the four bombers gave their lives in response to a war caused in part by British Prime Minister Tony Blair. Ken Livingstone, the floor is yours. I want to see ISIL destroyed, not just because it represents a threat to those of us living here in this city as it did in Paris, but even more so because of what it imposes on the people that come under its control. The most, we, we, the most awful brutality and beheadings and crucifixions, but the subjugation of women back into a sort of semi-medieval state. The question is, how do you do it? In a sense, the guidance has been there for the last 70 years. At the end of the Second World War, when the victorious powers created the United Nations, they envisaged that as a policing organisation that would tackle crises and threats to world peace. 
Of course, it was completely um, derailed because of the long period of the Cold War, and the UN never really um, developed that function. But my fear is that if it's simply seen as Western troops on the ground, and there have to be troops on the ground, I suspect in their millions, I mean, because of the scale of the problem, the disparity of, uh, the, and the, 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 diver, the, the um, diversity of the areas in which um, people are hiding, buried away in small communities. There isn't one great big ISIL headquarters that can just be bombed. They've, been, uh, they've learned a lot about how to hide themselves in a bigger population. If it's just seen as the West, though, I think that becomes a recruiting agent for other fundamentalist terrorists um, in many um, nations. It's got to be seen as the world acting together, not America and Britain and most probably France intervening in their own interests, which is how the West is perceived all over the Middle East. We have to look at the, the situation of involving nations like China and Nigeria and Brazil, so it is not seen simply as us once again intervening in the Middle East because of our desire to control um, the supply of oil. We also need to look at how this problem has arisen. I, it isn't just in Syria and Iraq, in Libya, in northern Nigeria where it's Boko Haram, in Mali. I write the way across the Muslim world, these um, intolerant terrorist organisations exist and even if you destroy ISIS in one of its areas, that won't necessarily tackle, and won't tackle at all, um, those other areas. What I find interesting about this was as a young man, back in 1966, I hitchhiked through North Africa and across the Sahara Desert um, down to Nigeria. My life would be at risk if I tried to do that today. I'd most likely be beheaded by Boko Haram somewhere in northern Nigeria. But when I did that trek, uh, half a century ago, I found a tolerant Muslim community. I didn't meet a fundamentalist. Uh, the, the, the Arabs that gave us lifts would sit around and uh, drink a, uh, a bottle of beer with us at the end of the day. There was no sign of this. Where did this come from? And it's interesting uh, because uh, Harold Macmillan, who was the British Prime Minister back in the 1950s, in 1955, he writes in his diary, and his diaries are very honest because he never intended they should be published. Uh, but he writes in that diary in 1955, he's worried that the oil money flowing into Saudi Arabia is being used to fund the spread of an intolerant strand of Islam across um, the Muslim world. And that's exactly true. The CIA estimates that in the 1990s, Saudi Arabia was spending $3 billion a year and funding the intolerant Wahhabi strand, which has helped to fuel uh, not just ISIL, uh, but also, of course, um, the many other terrorist organisations, um, and in particular, Osama bin Laden. So the reality is here that uh, we need to say, if we want to tackle this terrorist threat, we need the West to stand up and say to Saudi Arabia, stop your funding of these organisations. You may have heard about 10 days ago on the Today programme, David Cameron being interviewed four or five times. He was asked to criticise um, Saudi Arabia on this. He avoided answering the question, and he's not unique. 
Tony Blair, when he was Prime Minister, suspended the investigation into massive armaments corruption that was underway. Western governments have not been prepared to criticise Saudi, which has been the principal funder of Islamist terrorism and intolerance. I, equally, if you look at I, our record of interventions, they have been disastrous. They've been counterproductive. They've been a recruiting agent um, for these terrorists. And the most striking and horrific of those decisions was in 1979, when the Central Intelligence Agency went to brief President Carter in the Oval Office and said to him that Russia is very worried about the increasing number of fundamentalist Muslim groups in Afghanistan undermining what was then a pro-Russian government. And the CIA said to Carter, if we start giving them arms, Russia will be forced to intervene and it will become their Vietnam. And that's exactly what happened. And of course, eventually, uh, the Taliban and the Mujahideen defeated the Russians. But did it not occur to anyone that after those fundamentalists had driven the Russians out of a Muslim area, they'd look around to see what other powers are interfering and meddling in Muslim nations. And that, in a sense, I believe, that decision um, President Carter took lit the fuse that led to 9-11. If we look at our other interventions, there was a democratic government in Iran in 1953, a sort of a leftish uh, guy called Mossadegh, who won the election fair and square. He then nationalised the oil, uh, Britain and America organised the overthrow of that government, imposed the Shah, a brutal dictator for 25 years, torturing his own people while enriching himself, but opening the way to the challenge that would come with Ayatollah Khomeini and a complete transformation. If we hadn't intervened in Iran, if we'd been prepared to pay them a fair price for their oil, we might see in Iran today a very Western-style and tolerant functioning democracy. Then, if you look at many of the other actions we've taken, whether I, it's been in Iraq, and you know as much about that as I do, it's been so well reported. I, the simple reality is Western interventions have been counterproductive, haven't resolved any of these crises, and if we wish to bring this terror threat to an end, we've got to look for a much broader coalition, I, bringing in, as I said, nations like China, who have many more troops available for this than um, most Western countries, one has to say. But it's about ending the double standards. Every day we see in the papers a criticism of Russia's appalling bombing of many innocent civilians in Syria, but virtually nothing about the fact that Britain is advising Saudi Arabia on the bombing of rebel groups in Yemen, causing equal, if not greater, numbers of civilian casualties. The simple reality is great powers do terrible things. Whilst claiming to be fighting for justice and democracy, they actually defend their own interests. And that's how it's been for centuries. If we want to actually end this threat, which is growing and spreading, we've got to look beyond our own interests and build that broader coalition that will bring the millions of troops that you are going to need to eliminate this threat to us here in this city, but even more, the appalling horror they impose on the people they control in the areas under their command. Thank you very much.
Ken Livingstone, the first uh, speaker against the motion. Uh, let's now move on to the second speaker for the motion, to Douglas Murray, Associate Director of the Interventionist Henry Jackson Society, a prolific journalist, writer, broadcaster, a vocal critic of the West's lack of will to confront ISIS. Douglas Murray, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Nick. Thank you uh, to the BBC and Intelligence Squared. It's a great pleasure to be back and uh, speaking at one of these debates. Um, Let me start with a historical reference. You've just been given one tour of history, and we could spend all evening giving different tours of the same history. Uh, But one of the great pleasures of writing for The Spectator magazine, which is the oldest English-language magazine, is that one gets the opportunity sometimes to go through the archives. So let me read you something very wise written in The Spectator, in a piece called The Future of Syria, and this was published on the 5th of February, 1916. Quote, We say with all the emphasis at our command, and without the slightest fear of contradiction, official or otherwise, not only that we do not want Syria for ourselves, but that nothing would induce us to take it. It is more territory than we shall have the manpower or financial strength to manage and develop properly. Now, it happens that 100 years on, this is also very much my view. Uh, Even those of us who have been in favor of interventions at times in the Balkans and in Iraq and Afghanistan may well have, and ought to, in my opinion, have, second thoughts on intervention and its utility on occasion. Syria, for me, is just such an occasion. It's been my belief for the almost five years now that the civil war there has been going on that it is not in our gift or in our power, and I say our, I mean America or Britain or Western powers, to knit that country together. It is not in our gift. And if you believe the pottery barn rule that if you break it, you own it, then we should be very careful not to help break Syria because we don't want to own it. Now, having said all of that, What is different about this? What is a rationale for committing any troops, even the specialist multinational troops of the kind that General Allen and I are proposing tonight, what is the rationale for uh, projecting those into Syrian territory? Well, um, it isn't hard to go through all of the terrible, bleak, nihilistic things that ISIS does and to find rationales in them, but I'm not going to do that. Um, If you want to critique ISIS for its sectarianism, you can quite rightly also point to the House of Saud for its sectarianism. After all, it was a Shiite sheikh who they executed last month and his young nephew who was arrested at an underage at the age of 17 who's currently awaiting execution in Saudi Arabia where he will first of all be beheaded and then be crucified. So it's possible, very easy indeed, to go around the region and find other people who would propose that. Uh, One could select ISIS's attitude towards people they claim to be adulterers. Well, so what? This country has just signed a very friendly deal with Iran, and Iran stones adulterers to death and hangs them from cranes. So it would be an unwise way to go in that way. One may well point, as Hillary Benn did in the House of Commons the other week, to uh, ISIS's um, belief that they can execute people because they're gay. But 
That isn't such a rare view, and indeed, uh, when Ken Livingstone was mayor, he rolled out the red carpet for a very prominent sheikh, a user of al-Qaradawi, who believes just this sort of thing. So one can look not very far at all for people who uh, propose such things and excuse them and so on. And it's also possible, of course, to point out that the very ideology itself is not as alien an ideology as some people would claim. Uh, if you were to find any school of jurisprudence in Islam that you were to admire or to rec recognize as being at least one that was widely respected, you would probably turn to Al-Azhar in Cairo, a very interesting interview two months ago with an esteemed Sheikh Mohammed Abdullah Nazwa criticizing Al-Azhar. He said, why is it that Al-Azhar, whenever it is asked to condemn uh, secularists, does so and calls them un-Islamic, but when it comes to ISIS, it cannot call ISIS un-Islamic, it calls them heretic. It can't call them heretics, sorry. It can't call them un-Islamic. This Sheikh's explanation was, quote, the Islamic State is a byproduct of Al-Azhar's programs. So how can Al-Azhar denounce itself as un-Islamic? So the theology, the extremism, the vileness, the vile behavior can be found in countries and in institutions which this country, from left and right, doesn't seem to have much of a problem with. So what is the problem with ISIS? It is not those things. It is something that can be summed up in two individual places which should resonate in any hall like this here tonight. The first is Tunisia, the massacre of 30 British tourists on a beach enjoying their holiday, a cold-blooded and deliberate attempt on their lives for the crime of being on holiday, uh, an act which ISIS has repeatedly attempted to carry out elsewhere. And the second name is Paris, because a group that plans and plots and carries out attacks like that on our friends, on people you know, on people we know, for being in a hall like this tonight, perhaps less well-guarded, perhaps in London next time, perhaps a hall, children's age, perhaps a concert, perhaps a restaurant. That's why. Because ISIS alone of these groups at the moment not only says what it wants to do, to people like you and people like me, but it is trying to do it. In the last few months alone, it has made repeated attempts, as the Prime Minister said recently, thwarted attempts to carry out such an attack here in the UK. When it happens, and I obviously, like everyone else, hope it does not, but when it happens, we will turn around and say, and look back at an evening like this and say, what the hell were we thinking of? Even wondering whether we ought to be crushing this group with everything at our disposal or not. What the hell were we thinking by even doubting it? Now, we have to be careful. Obviously, we have to be careful. ISIS is a millenarian, end-time theological group. It believes that at the, just before the end of the world, the armies of Rome will come and fight the armies of ISIS, an ISIS-like group, around the Syrian town of Dabiq, and that this will herald the end times. So, We've got to be intelligent about this. It would be unwise if a Roman army announced its imminent descent on that particular Syrian town, obviously. But just to wrap up, there is no reason why we cannot be intelligent about this. Two, as General Allen, with his unparalleled experience, has already laid out, to be intelligent about this 
to get a regional force if we can put it together, to try to make as large a coalition as possible, not to tell ISIS in advance what we are going to do. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv but to make the decision to be resolute and to make sure that a decision of all civilized people led by us if it has to be decides and then goes through with the act of snuffing this group out completely thank you Douglas Murray, the speaker, the second speaker for the motion. Thank you. Let's now move to the second speaker against the motion, Rula Jibrail, a half Palestinian, half Italian, born in Israel, and now one of the best known voices from the region as a foreign policy analyst, journalist, novelist, and broadcaster. Welcome. The floor is yours. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here, actually, and I would like to thank you for inviting me to a city that I love to discuss one of the most pressing issues of foreign policy of our lifetime, maybe. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, as it was mentioned, I was born in the Middle East. My father was Muslim, my mother was Christian, an American Jew, and I have a Catholic daughter. So don't hold that against me, please. (laughs) I lived in Cairo. I lived in Rome. I traveled the Middle East and still travel in the Middle East every month. But I'm here tonight, actually, with a sense of deja vu because we're again lectured with all due respect by two white men who are telling us that we need another war in the Middle East and we need to send your children your loved ones, to die for a war that we know that we cannot win. These wars, and these wars as they sit side by side by patronage, followed by unconditional support and empowerment of corrupt, abusive tyrant whose abuse have helped foster mass radicalization across the region, and not now, for the last four decades. We backed Egypt and we still back Egypt, what they give us, political Islam. They actually, the president that's been called a reformist, Sisi, is a guy that has 40,000 political prisoners. He used torture, and he put people in prison even for wearing a Mickey Mouse hat or posting his picture with a Mickey Mouse hat. This is the guy 
that is fueling radicalization. Egypt gave us, actually, the father of political Islam, Sayyid Qutb, who wrote the manifesto of Al-Qaeda. We still give him money, aid, American aid, and we still consider him a liberator. You know, when people care about human rights only when the enemy commits them, commits them they really don't care about human rights. Let's look at, and many talked about Saudi Arabia, but what Saudi Arabia is sharing with these ideological groups is the ideology and theology and funneling thousands of millions of dollars on every year. And we still know, as the State Department said on multiple occasions, that they have proved that private funders still financing the free Syrian army, which John Allen, actually General Allen, called our partners. He said we trained them. Americans spent $500 million in the last year and a half to train five people. The rest of them, the 15 groups, jihadist groups that are operating, 15. So when you think that you are sending Western troops to fight only ISIS, you will not be fighting or facing only ISIS. What you'll find yourself, your children, your loved ones again, fighting are five, six parties. Russians, who don't want you to be there, the Assad regime doesn't want you to be there. And these 15 groups, plus Hezbollah, Iranian militia, who are present and working because they are helping Assad win this war, and disenfranchised Sunni people who've been bombarded by Assad barrel bombs for the last five years, killed, harassed, tortured, abused. The first person that was killed in 2001, when millions of Syrians stood up demanding equality, democracy, and freedom, the first person, his name was Hamza al-Khatib. He was 13 years old. He was from a city called Dara. The regime arrested him, tortured him, slashed his penis. They shot him with three bullets in the head. They returned him home. John F. Kennedy used to say, the president, when you make nonviolent revolutions impossible, what you are doing is you are making violent revolutions inevitable. This is what the Assad regime gave us, ladies and gentlemen. So what you, are be, what you will be doing, basically, sending people, troops on the ground in Raqqa, the capital of ISIS, knowing that there is a civil war, which no civil war in history has been solved with troops. Actually, in order to defeat ISIS in Syria, you have to address the Syrian issue. Tyranny and tyrant in the Middle East live in symbiosis. They galvanize each other, legitimize each other. Assad did a logical choice, in his case, and a strategic choice. While he was killing, in 2011, pro-democracy activists, cracking down on them on a daily basis, bombarding them, he did something else. He released hardcore jihadists. One of them was Alush. He went on to become the leader of Jaysh al-Islam. The guy that is not considered part of ISIS, but another group who's fighting, actually, sometimes ISIS, and promised that in case of, even if you eliminate ISIS, he will become ISIS 2.0, basically. Another ISIS. This guy used to put women and children in cages on top of buildings. Until recently, some people in the United States considered him. Even the Washington Post said, 
Too bad that the Russian killed him because this guy could have actually negotiated a deal, a settlement. Assad liberated another guy, Hassan Abboud, who was the founder of another radical group, Ahrar al-Sham. He liberated top commander of Al-Nusra Front, which is a sister organization of Al-Qaeda. As I said before, terror and tyranny in the Middle East feed on each other to survive and thrive. So if you want indigenous group, as John Allen said, to eliminate ISIS, first you have to make them understand that the civil war needs to end and we need to have a settlement about that. For now, the overwhelming majority of Syrians don't see ISIS as their primary threat because they see Assad as a major enemy. They will never fight ISIS until the two conditions are established on the ground. Safety and justice. And I say that because I've seen over and over in the Middle East where we back these tyrants, they produce terrorism, and they force foreign interventions. It's time to interrupt this cycle. You can't have your children again and again fight their war because it will be your death and it will not change any condition on the ground. I'm hearing tonight if these 14 years of war and terror never existed. I'm listening tonight if, if ISIS in 2001, during the uh, attacks on the Twin Towers, there were 400 jihadists according to the FBI. Today, we have hundreds of thousands in the heart of the Middle East. If this is not a failure of policy, then what? Before you decide, I just want you to know that General Petraeus, the guy that led the surge in Iraq, became the CIA, he opposed actually sending troops on the grounds. As President Obama, as every candidate on the Republican side, even the crazy ones like Donald Trump, as well as Defense Secretary, who worked with George W. Bush and with Obama, Robert Gates, who said, anyone who wants to send troops on the ground need to be examined in his head before. I'm saying that because it's time for us to change. There's a political process in place. There's talks in Geneva. We need to address the civil war in Syria because that's the cause that actually fostering radicalization in the region, especially in Syria. Without addressing this, you're absolutely running after symptoms, addressing symptoms, and not the disease. And I would love to add one last thing. Before you, we send, again, these troops, like we did in Iraq and, and we did in Afghanistan. And by the way, there's 3,700 special troops already in Iraq, and there's 10,000 in, in Afghanistan. So I would like to know from John Allen, what is the number and what Western, which Western country will send? And I would like you also to ask General Allen, who led the coalition to counter ISIS, why did he fail to convince President Obama and Congress and the CIA? Were they pacifists? No. They just know a bad strategy when they see it. So ladies and gentlemen, I would like you to think. Numbers are not opinions. Look at the trajectory of the war on terror. Even when we killed bin Laden, it didn't affect the trajectory of war on terror. What can change the game on the ground for the first time? Genuine empowerment of people who, in 2011, after bin Laden was killed, 
went to the streets millions and demanded democracy, dignity, and a better life. Yes, history can go forward and backwards and sideways, but it always bends toward justice. Thank you. So there, ladies and gentlemen, you've had the arguments for the motion and against the motion. Let me open the floor now uh, to those who want to contribute from the floor. There are microphones. Where are you, please, microphones? Okay. I'm currently writing um, a book about Islam, and what I'd like to ask is how is it possible to defeat the perception largely across the Middle East that um, the West is simply there uh, to, uh, to forward its own interests. Uh, how is that at all possible to move beyond that perception? Rula, come back on that in a moment, but I want to get another couple of voices. So far, they've all been men. Where are the women here, please? Um, I'd like to ask um, Rula. I mean, certainly it's the first time I've heard the, um, it put... Um, the case that actually it's the West who think they're fighting ISIS, where for the Syrians, they're actually fighting Assad. So it seems that we're really at cross-purposes and there's no chance of us working together. Yes, it um, will derail the political process. Western troops on the ground will derail the political process that is trying to take place in Geneva throughout talks so the civil war can end. Not only that, when General Allen says it's, it's, they, will, they are coming for us, they are, I'm sorry, it's, ISIS is an idea, it's everywhere. If you think that it's limited to Raqqa where they control or to, to Iraq or to Sirte where they control actually a city in Libya, and, and, and only sending troops into, uh, that will defeat them. It's an idea. We need to defeat the idea with another better idea, but also empower and the civil war in Syria in order to do that. One last thing. I just want you to think of this data. Numbers are not opinions. In 2001, 3,200 died because of terrorism. In 2015, 38,000 people died. So if the trajectory of war on terror, we are winning, somebody have to tell me in these 14 years what they've been doing. Microphone four, please. Hello, my name is Aida. I'm Iraqi, and I'm from Mosul. I'm uncertain at the moment. Uh, this is a question to General Allen. To defeat ISIS, you quoted that we need to arm, train, and help the indigenous population of that region. But isn't that what was supposed to happen when you entered Iraq in 2002 and liberated us from Saddam Hussein. So I would like to know how, how can you assure us that this is not going to create yet again another mess and vacuum for other jihadists? What I had proposed was not the large-scale invasion of Iraq that you're pointing to. What I had proposed is something more akin. If you're Iraqi, then you know very well what happened with the Sahwa al-Anbar and the Sahwa al-Iraq which was the awakening, which was when the tribes of the Euphrates and Al-Anbar were in fact supported, were in fact given the opportunity to defend themselves. They defeated Al-Qaeda, they liberated their province, and they set the conditions ultimately for Iraqis to take back their lives from Al-Qaeda. That's what I'm proposing. I'm not proposing a large-scale intervention, as my <coughs> comments made. 
So the, the whole issue about whether I'm proposing an invasion to the region is, is not at all what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is giving the individuals who must fight ISIS the capacity to do so. And it doesn't require a lot of force to do it. And let, me just make, let me take issue with what Rula said. Uh, in fact, the Syrians are interested in defeating ISIS. Go to the Euphrates River and go straight down from Raqqa to uh, Zor. And they are, in fact, oriented. They do want to fight Assad. They do want to remove the regime. But they're deeply committed to fighting ISIS. And many of the Syrian groups, with the relatively small numbers of special forces to give them the capability, have had great effect in pushing ISIS off the Syrian border and pushing it deeper into Syria. And that's a group of people who are Syrians, who are sick of the, the regime, who are sick of Assad, but they are, in fact, intent on liberating themselves and their people from ISIL, and they're having great effect doing it. So Sir, you, I, you're trained I, only I want, to hear, I want to hear from Ken Livingston. Ken Livingston, this argument about giving capacity on the ground. If you're going to defeat this group, you need a vast force. Right? Just helping a bit with this or that group that might be fighting on our side in the short term... It, we fail to understand this is a deep religious divide. Forget just the terrorism. Between Shia and Sunni, it's almost like 500 years ago in Europe between Catholic and Protestant. And that is why the Saudis have broadly sat um, on their hands, and Turkey has, because they are not going to attack people that are Sunni, which is what ISIS is, they want to kill, as Saudi's currently doing in Yemen, um, the Shia. And an awful lot of those fundamentalists that have been funded by the Saudis generally believe if you're a Shia, you should just be killed because you're a traitor um, to the faith of the Prophet Muhammad. Thank you very much. Simon Mel, former UK uh, British Army General, for the motion. Uh, I'd like to pay tribute to John Allen's uh, inspired, gallant and sophisticated leadership both in Anbar and Afghanistan, a great friend of the United Kingdom and much respected by the British military. I'd like to say that uh, Rula has talked about children being killed. Uh, they're already being killed. Shias, Sunnis, Yazidis, Kurds uh, and, of course, French most recently. 2003, poor strategy. If we'd done what John has recommended now, what I've advocated in all my time as Defence Senior Advisor, we'd have been in a much better place. The debate is about ISIS. It's about a state, not a terror group, and it's growing. It cannot be about tackling the whole of Takfiri ideology. ISIS is a threat to the whole state structure. We will have no stability in which we need uh, at all uh, without a military operation, and only that will lead to the type of uh, ambition that I utterly commend Ruler for having, but I don't see it happening if we just stay as spectators. I'll simply say there are boots on the ground now, they're the only reason we're having any success, frankly, uh, against uh, ISIS uh, from the Kurds or the ISF. It's slow, and we're being oversensitive, to my mind. We need more. We need the nuance the way John Allen has said, and that is the way we will enable the indigenous security forces to get a grip on this. All right. And the idea of being a spectator uh, while we wait, I'm afraid, for rulers Nirvana to come uh, is beyond comprehension. I vote for the motion. Thank General Mail, thank you. Uh, the lady here, please. The lady here. The lady here with the. Um, hi. Um, I started out undecided and am now against, thanks to Ken and Rulers' uh, reminders of how short-term Western strategy has been over the past decades. Um, but it was Douglas's comment about how defeating ISIS or putting Western boots on ground 
um, was about keeping us safe, so keeping us safe in London, that really made me think. And I was thinking back to growing up in the 80s and 90s in North London and, um, you know, the, the times that we felt unsafe because of IRA bombs going off in Canary Wharf or in Staples Corner, of um, seeing, you know, hijackings of airlines by the PLO and so on in the 80s. And I thought to myself, what's happened since? Why are we no longer afraid of the IRA? Why is the PLO no longer a threat? And the answer is because there was a peace process, because there were leaders that were determined on either sides of the Atlantic with regards to the IRA to bring about a peaceful end to the troubles in Northern Ireland, because um, the PLO, because Hamas, because Yasser Arafat and so on, were brought into a peace process so what I'd like to ask is, are we not better off, you know, I'm not saying bring ISIS into a peace process, but marginalizing and co continuing a political discussion rather than a continuation of violence, which just seems to breed more unhappy people in the, in, in the Middle East. Thank you. Most of you have now voted, so let's get the final remarks in reverse order. Ruler Jabril, uh, you are speaking against the motion. If you didn't vote, I invite you to vote against. And I'll tell you why. Because repeating the same failed policies of the last 15 years, thinking that they will produce a different outcome, is madness. As Einstein used to say, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and hoping in a different outcome. A different outcome will become, we experiment these policies for the last 14 years and we've seen rise. Uh, Iraq invasion gave us ISIS. That was acknowledged by President Obama and even by your former Prime Minister, Tony Blair, who apologized and then blamed it actually on the intelligence. I, ha I love and believe in the militaries. In, in the people to keep us safe and secure as global citizens. I believe the military should do the strategy, but politicians should lay out the plans. And every politician on the right, on the left in America does not believe in this because they've seen in the last, I would say, 14 years that the number of people who died because of terror skyrocketed and the number of jihadists. Al-Qaeda disappeared or in the shadows now, operating in the shadows, but you have a worst monster and will create, keep creating a worst monster. Don't deal with the symptoms. It's time to deal with the causes. Diplomacy is not a bad word. It's actually becoming a bad word as a sign of weaknesses. The Beshmerga group that actually combat ISIS today, the Kurdish groups, their leader, Barazani, their leader, the person that liberated Sinjar and Kobani with American assistance, special, meaning dropping bombs and also helping them, they wanted these troops. The rest of the region doesn't see Western troops as legitimate because of their track record. They will fight you. Europeans want, wanted to be liberated. Arabs, Muslims, to want to handle their own affairs. So please, a, ruler, vote ruler, against. There, there's a limit to what uh, I can ask you to say. Douglas Murray, your last remark, please, in a minute. Of course, we're not suggesting on this side that we do the same thing over and over again. We've been quite clear throughout. We're suggesting something quite other, something very specific. We're not suggesting, for instance, that we overthrow Assad or that we decide to put in another government in Damascus. So everything that Rula's just said, was slightly off-key. 
Um, the IRA point, which was just made, is a helpful one in some ways and shows perhaps a, a, um, an important difference in history. I have written a book on this matter, which I heartily recommend. But, um, in fact, the IRA was not destroyed by uh, a peace process. It came to the table because it was made operationally incapable by members of the British security services, by people whose names you don't know, whose names and whose honour has been far, far too covered over in the years since. But it was because the IRA could no longer operate that it came to the table. And that was a military and an intelligence success story that needs to be credited. You say marginalising ISIS. I mean, how can they be more marginalised? Finally, sorry, Ken Livingston, yes, of course he should come over to this side. He's arguing for the same thing. And it would be lovely, lovely to be on the same side as Ken for the first time ever. Do, 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 um... Do I feel safer? It's, 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 it's in, in an unanswerable question. The world is a very complex place, has a huge number of factors, a whole range of things that are a problem. I, my best answer to you is this. The way you will feel safest is if you know you have a government and security services and police and army and others who have your safety at heart. And if they do then they should be doing everything they can to make sure that the primary threat to people like you and me is destroyed. Douglas Murray, the uh, first voice for the motion. Now the second voice, the final voice against the motion. Ken Livingston. We just have to look at our record of intervention. We intervened, or America intervened, um, by supporting the Mujahideen and the Taliban to overthrow a pro-Russian uh, regime in Afghanistan. It's been a nightmare ever since. We did the same thing with um, Saddam Hussein. I mean, Tony Blair, when he flew to meet George Bush... Um, after 9-11, came back stunned, including his staff, because he went there to talk about what we go to do about uh, Afghanistan and al-Qaeda. All they wanted to talk about was how we're going to overthrow Saddam Hussein. Why did they want to overthrow Saddam Hussein? Because Saddam Hussein was saying it was time to start trading oil, Iraqi oil, in the euro and not the dollar a challenge um, to America's oil interests in that area. And that's exactly all that the Middle East has been about for the last hundred years. We want to control their oil. We want to um, get the maximum profit out of it. And it has been a disaster. If we'd just been prepared to allow the Arabs to rule themselves and pay a fair um, sum for their oil, we'd be better off now and tens of thousands of people will still be alive. I will not support some limited intervention which will only fuel a, re a recruiting sergeant for more terrorist groups, not just in that area, but across the whole of the, the Muslim world. We either have to have a huge coalition, as we did to defeat the Nazis, or we make matters worse. Ken Livingston, thank you. So you've heard all the remarks and arguments against the motion. Now the final voice for the motion, General John Allen. Thanks, Nick. The, uh, the points that have been made here tonight are very important points, and it's, it's important to get uh, so many voices into the, the mix here. Um, one of the things that is not, uh, has not been adequately covered this evening is another very important part of the strategy beyond the limited and nuanced use of limited boots on the ground to give the, the region the capability of taking care of itself, uh, has been very, very substantial efforts 
politically and diplomatically to try to find solutions as well. Uh, the, the Vienna efforts that are underway now is an example of the efforts by the West to try to seek some kind of a political solution in, in this. This can't be solved in Syria on the ground with military options. It can't be solved in Iraq with military options. There has to be a political solution as well. And we work very closely with the Iraqi government to build the capacity within the Iraqi government ultimately to achieve the kinds of reconciliation that is necessary to undercut the basis from which groups like Daesh or ISIL or al-Qaeda can emerge. So it's a very important defense or a strategy in depth. We have to fight because Daesh is in our face right now. We don't want to, but we have to. They have brought the war to us. We have to defend ourselves here in London and in Washington, D.C., and we have to give the region the capacity to take back the faith of Islam and to take back their region. And they, in fact, I, I disagree with Rula substantially on this point, they do want our help in doing it because they don't have the capacity themselves. What they don't want is large formations of Western troops to do it for them. They want to do it themselves. And in providing that kind of nuanced support, to give them the capacity to do it right now, they can defend themselves, they can take back their faith, they can take back the region. But that's not where it ends. This is where the important aspect of what Rula has talked about in terms of diplomacy and, and political uh, efforts on our part are very important. In the midterm, we have got to work with these countries that are beleaguered with growing elements of radicalized population to try to reduce the reasons and the systematic uh, underlying causes that creates that, that radicalization. We've got to get to the left of it. And we have to work in the deep zone uh, as much as 30 to 50 years in the future to, to work with partners to build the capacity for governance and the rule of law and the rights of women, to incorporate them into society, to try to create conditions where individuals will have some hope and some future. That begins to get us to the left of radicalization. That reduces the recruiting pool for extremists. That reduces the capacity for the symptoms that Rula correctly talked about. The symptoms of the problem are Al-Qaeda and Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines and Jimas Lamia in Indonesia and ISIL. Those are the symptoms of the problem. We have to fight them because they're coming for us. And we, we should not be opposed to doing that. We should not shrink from doing that. We have to defend the people in London. We have to defeat the people, uh, defend the people in Washington. But if that's all we're doing, that's not enough. We've got to change the underlying circumstances that create such a large recruiting pool. And unless we grip that as part of our long-term strategy, we'll never be successful in the end. General Allen, thank you very much indeed. Right, I now uh, can share with you what the result of the vote is. I remind you that... Uh, Two-thirds of you in this room hadn't made up your minds. Almost all of you have made up your minds. It was only 17, 16% of you for and against when you first came into this hall. Um, the result is that only 8% of you haven't made up your mind. Against is 40%. 52% of you believe that there should uh, be Western boots on the ground in order to defeat ISIS. So I declare the motion carried. Can I, can I just thank all the speakers, you the audience, uh, here at uh, the Emanuel Centre in London for what has been a, a fascinating debate. My thanks to Intelligence Squared as well for making it possible. Goodbye from me, Nick Gowing, and everyone here in London. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening.
You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.